All right. You can turn over in your Bibles to Second uh, Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Out of, kind of out of sorts this week. Been missing my wife, and good to have her. She's coming back on Monday. So it's hard. You got a house full of people, and then uh, it was just grandson and I, which we had a good time. We had a fun time, but it was a quiet house this week. So, but uh, the conference that Ambika spoke at, up there at uh, Montana Avenue Baptist Church where uh, Pastor Rob Kessinger pastors, he's spoken here before. Um, they had a women's conference, and so she was able to go up and speak, and Shelly and Peggy went along, and, and they're all coming back on Monday. So you can pray for their travels, and Mason travels up there. Finally, uh, he's been waiting to get home. <laughs> he doesn't mind spending time here, but <laughs> he really wants to see his uh, mom and dad and the dogs and everything else up there in Idaho. So pray that he has a good summer up there as well. But uh, as we uh, turn our hearts to God's Word uh, this morning, we read this passage uh, last week, and uh, I just want to, you can just remain seated, but uh, I want to read the the section that we'll be looking at uh, this morning. We were over in Daniel a little bit, but uh, we'll be reading, uh, picking up with that, but I just want to read the first five verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul writes, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness or the man of sin is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Father, we ask that you bless this reading to our hearts, this word of God, and Lord, as we continue in our message this morning, preparing for the end times, the revealing of the Antichrist, I pray that you would give us wisdom beyond our own ability and help us to understand the words that were written to our hearts. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is dealing here with the Antichrist, and last week we jumped back, and you can turn back there actually, back to Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9. And we looked at verse 24 specifically, but we looked at all the, we were looking, going to look at all the verses, we kind of ran out of time, so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And uh, last week we were looking at verse 4, 24 of chapter 9, and remember Daniel's praying for Israel, and uh, God answers his prayer with a vision, um, or a revelation from an angel that came and answered his prayer, and basically he's telling him in verse 24, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. And we said that this was six things that that this angel tells Daniel God is going to do. And he gives him 70 weeks, and these are uh, uh, 70 uh, weeks of seven. And we're, we're talking about years, not days. And so we're talking about 490 years in totality concerning this prophecy. And so he says, first of all, you're going to finish the transgression. He's going to finish the transgression. He's going to bring sin to an end, and we went over that last week. It will finally be controlled. It will finally be um, restrained. And then secondly, he says he's going to put an end to sin. And the idea here is judgment. And we talked about the idea that on the cross, Christ paid for our sins, and we no longer endure the penalty of our sins, nor the power of our sins of sin, and one day we will be free from the presence of sin. And so he says that this is going to be put to an end. And then the third thing he says was that it's going to atone for iniquity. He says, I've got this 490-year period of time, and remember how he came up with that number. We talked about that they violated the Sabbath rules, 
And it basically added up to about 490 years. So he says, as a result of that, I'm going to put you in captivity, but then I'm going to carve out 490 years out of history, and I'm going to deal with you. And we think, wow, he's, he's going to deal with them rashly. No, he takes that 490-year period of, God, of time, and this is the gracious God that we have. And he says, you know what? You violated my rules and my commandments for 490 years, but guess what? I'm going to take 490 years, and I'm going to offer you a way out. I'm going to offer you gracious salvation. I'm going to take 490 years and offer you salvation. And during that time, I'm going to bring sin to its final ending, culmination, take control over it. I'm going to judge it. And he comes up with these six things here in verse 24. The first three deal with getting rid of sin. They deal with the ministry of Christ while he was here on earth, his birth and his death. And now the second three deal with his second coming. And so the the fourth thing here in the list of six, or the the first one in the second set of three, dealing with the second coming, he says, I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. And we said that that happens when he begins his millennial reign here on earth for a thousand years. We believe that to be a literal reign of Christ here on earth with his saints. We will be here with him during that time for a thousand years. And then he says, fifthly, that that he's going to seal up both vision and profit. And it's interesting because one day we will not need to learn anything. We won't need prophets to speak to our hearts or someone to teach us the word of God. We will have the mind of Christ. And so he says that's going to happen. First Corinthians, Paul talks about that in verse 13. He says, you will be known as you are known. Uh, you, you will know as, as you are known now. And so there'll be no reason to learn anything. We won't be God, but we will have the mind of Christ. How that all works, I don't know. But this is what his second coming will fulfill. And then finally, he says, thirdly, he says he's going to anoint the most holy place. And we concluded that that was um, uh, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, that will be the centerpiece of heaven, basically. And so here's this prophecy that this angel lays out for Daniel, and he's basically just having his little prayer time, and he got a lot more than what he <laughs> bargained for, I think. He's, his head is probably swimming at this point. Uh, mine's been swimming for weeks as I've been studying these messages, trying to figure this out. Now, there are disagreements on the timeline on some of these things, but for the most part, it's a very, very precise prophecy. I think it was uh, Einstein who said it's, it's, it's the one uh, prophecy that really proves what Scripture says is true because it's based on factual information, things that really happened. And so we talked about these 70 weeks, these 70 of, of years, of 490 years that God is going to deal with them. And we said that it breaks down into um, these years, as he points out here in Daniel. He says, first of all, there's going to be a time period of, uh, he says, 70 weeks. And then he goes down there further, and he says, are decreed about your holy people to finish the transgression, to all that. And then verse, uh, then in verse 25, he says, for the... Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And during that seven weeks or 49 years, they rebuilt the city. And then it says for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks plus the seven, that gives us 69 weeks of the 70 weeks that he's prophesied. Now, what happens here? Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a break in time. Okay, this, this last week, this 70th week is kind of dangling there in the prophecy. And if you look at um, the timeline of Daniel, you realize that it's about 173,880 days from this prophecy to the fulfillment And we talked about how that's when Christ rode in to Jerusalem. And so it's a very, very uh, exact prophecy 
that is fulfilled. And it mentions there that at that time, this prince will be cut off. He will be killed. This speaks of the death of Christ. And it doesn't say that it will happen at the completion of the 69th week, but it, will, it says that it will happen after that. And who did that? Uh, who destroyed Jerusalem during that time in 70 AD? The Romans did. And so if you go all the way back to, um, uh, back to Daniel, it says in, in chapter 7, verse 25, that this coming Antichrist, it says that he's going to wear out the saints of the Most High with his persecution. And so there's coming a time where this Antichrist will have a power. And, you know, he, he doesn't get into all that here in 2 Thessalonians, but he touches on it all the way back in Daniel. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that this morning. And you say, well, where did the 70th week go? Well, if you look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, you'll see here, it says, and he, who's he talking about? He's talking about this coming Antichrist, the prince, uh, the willful king, this little horn that he talks, he describes him in other places in Daniel about. He says, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. There it is. That's the extra week. That's the 70th week. And he says, and for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering." And that speaks of our tribulation time. And he says, And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So you find this loose week here in in Daniel. Now the problem is we don't know when this week starts. (laughs) There's no indication. It's kind of imminent, you could say. Uh, you have this gap between the 69th and the 70th week of seven years. And it's like, well, where do we find these seven years? Well, guess what? It's, a, you know, it's just the way God works. He gives you a prophecy that's exactly right down almost to the day. But then he says, you know what? You're not going to know when this is going to be fulfilled. Uh, you're not going to know the day nor the hour. As a matter of fact, not even the Son of Man. Um, while he was here on earth, knew those things. That's amazing to me. So there's going to be a week of years, seven years, and the Antichrist is going to come, and he's, he's going to make a covenant on the surface with Israel. And you say, well, why would he want to do that if he's against Christ and if he's against God's people? Because he's a fraud. <laughs> okay, he's Antichrist. Remember what we said that means. It means against, but it also means in the stead of. So he's a fake Christ. He's lifting himself up during this time of of horrific uh, things that are going on the world. There's going to be wars everywhere, and he's going to be probably coming out of the the European Union, something like that. Who knows? But, I mean, you see the world and the way it's set right now, it's perfect because you have all this turmoil, and it's going to get worse. And I think at the worst possible moment, you're going to have somebody who steps up to the plate and says, hey, I have the solution. Let me fix it. And people are just going to blindly almost, not completely blindly because he's going to be able to do some miraculous things, but this Antichrist is going to come forward and say, I have the solution. And everybody's going to say, wow, this guy is so good looking. He speaks so well. Listen to what he says. He's a man of peace but he's a deceiver. He is the Antichrist. And so people are going to trust in this individual. And and Satan's ultimate goal is to set up a, you could say, a false religion right in Jerusalem. That's his goal, because that's the city of God. (laughs) It's the city of his people. And there's going to be economic hardship, but that's not really even his goal. It's more he wants to destroy the temple. He wants to destroy all worship of any god and set himself up as God in Jerusalem. And so he's going to work the crowd. He's going to get everybody on his side, and they're all going to put their faith, their trust in him to work out all the world war issues and everything like that. And so the Antichrist makes a covenant with them for seven years. 
And in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, okay, he says, no, stop your sacrifice. I'm not going to allow you to do this anymore. See, he, he wins Israel over. Some people say, well, is he, is he Jewish? Because why would Jewish people trust anybody other than someone who's Jewish? But we don't know that for sure. He could be a Gentile. He could be a Jew. It is interesting to think about it. But he could be masquerading as a Jew. We don't know. But for whatever reason, they're going to trust him. And they're going to say, wow, he's allowing us to build the temple. He worked out a peace deal. Now remember, all these things have to happen for this to take place. The Arabs are going to have to give up a portion of land for a temple over there. I mean, there's going to be some major political things that have been done that are undone that allow all this to take place. And Israel fully believes this is going to happen. As a matter of fact, they reinstituted the, the temple tax. They have all the, all the temple uh, instruments and tools. It's all, everything's ready. They just don't have a temple. But they're ready for it. And it, it, I, that's why it's going to happen very quickly. I don't think it's going to be something that drags on for 20 years. It's going to be happening very quickly. And if you think about the Middle East peace process, every president basically has tried to bring these two people, two people groups together in a peaceful resolution, and it's never happened, right? They go to their little meetings, and then they, two weeks later, they're bombing each other again. And, and that's just the way it is. Well, this guy's going to come along and say, hey, I got an answer. And he's actually going to provide one. And the people are going to put their faith, their trust in him. And it happens for the first three and a half weeks. Now, this guy comes out of nowhere. We're going to be looking a little bit at this this morning. But he comes out of nowhere and pretty much um, it, it tells us that ultimately he will set himself up as God. And in the middle of this seven-year tribulation, he will begin his um, reign. He will, you'll see the true colors come out. And that's basically the end of the beginning for him. He's not going to win, right? We're on the right side here as believers. Um, you know, the enemy does not win in the end. He's just deceived thinking he, he can. And so he makes it uh, miserable uh, for everyone up to that point. And so we see this prophecy unfold, and you know, like I said before, I mean, eventually we'll get through the book of Daniel, we'll teach through Daniel, but this is just a, a just a little scratch in the surface, uh, maybe to whet your appetite. But look, look back at Second Thessalonians chapter two, because we want to look at our, our text this morning, and this is a very, uh, it can be a very contested text among. Uh, Bible teachers, and there's a lot of different views, and so I'm hopefully going to do it justice this morning, and we can share with you what I believe Paul is instructing the Thessalonians concerning um, our this coming Antichrist. And so he, he gives in chapter 2, remember chapter 1 he talked about the coming of Christ and his judgment. Well, now he says, now here's what the Antichrist is going to be like. And so he begins to tell us um, in chapter 2 some information about the Antichrist. And number one, he says, basically in verses 1 and 2, he talks about the day of the Lord. And we know that day of the Lord is that day of judgment that's coming upon the world, this tribulation time that will unfold um, It says the day of the Lord is the time of his revelation. In other words, we're not going to know who the Antichrist is until this all happens. All right, and we're going to explain this to you this morning. The day of the Lord is a time of great uh, terror. It's a time of great holocaust. Uh, There's judgment. God is judging. He's taking his vengeance out upon this planet. And we often refer to it as the, what, tribulation period. This is what, when this is, is really fulfilled. And the day of the Lord, according to Paul's argument, is the time of the revelation of the Antichrist, not before. So let's look at two points here. The first one is the rapture is the basis for this word of exhortation from Paul. This is the whole reason he's sharing it with them. 
And then secondly, we're going to look at the immediate reason was the reaction of these believers to the reports that the day of the Lord, day of the Lord has already, was already here. They were in it. And so look at the first point there. The rapture is the basis for this word of exhortation from Paul. Look at what he says. He says, now concerning the coming, the word there is parousia in the original language, and it means presence or arrival, usually in a positive sense, not a negative sense. So he's, he's talking about the Lord coming in a positive sense. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he says this, and our gathering together to him. are gathering together to him. This word is basically, it's made up of, of, it's a compound word, but part of the word is the English word synagogue. All right? And, and so it's really telling us that this synagogue is going to be gathered together. This group of people is going to be gathered to the Lord. Now remember, the first, first Thessalonians was written by who? Paul. Who wrote 2 Thessalonians? Paul. It's the same individual, right? So we're not going to uh, figure that he's meaning anything else than what he has already spoken to us in the first epistle. And remember, when he went through 1 Thessalonians, he explained to them that they were concerned with the people who in the church who died. And they said, well, what happens to them, Paul? You know, are they going to miss the rapture? And he said, no. The dead in Christ will what? Rise first. And then, so he goes through that, that whole that whole thing. And he tells them, he explains to them in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, you're going to have this great reunion with your loved ones, even though they're, they're dead. They were a little concerned. They died. And they said, well, they're going to miss it. No. And remember, this is the first time that anybody has ever heard of the rapture of the church. This is brand new revelation to the church. This is brand new revelation to Paul. And so he's sharing that with this young church of new believers. And in 2 Thessalonians, what he does is he begins to move to the, all the way to the end of the tribulation, and he talks about how he's going to carry out his, his judgments and everything. He talks about the revelation of, of Jesus at the end of the tribulation when he comes in great power and glory. But here, he goes back to really this rapture issue, and he begins to share with them, because there was a problem in the church, and we talked about this previously, they believed that the Lord had already come, because they were under all this persecution, and they were a young church, and they heard what Paul said before, he taught them well on this, that's why he says, don't you remember I told you these things? They were well taught, but sometimes um, our experiences overwhelming, overwhelm us, do they not? And even what we know to be true can seem false. And even though Paul told them, hey, there's this horrible day coming, but don't worry, church. You're going to be caught up. You're going to be snatched out of here. No problem. And then God's wrath will fall upon this world. And the reason that we are snatched out of here is because we are not subject as believers to the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus paid our our price for our sin. He took the wrath of God upon himself for us. And so we are not under the judgment of God. It's interesting, sometimes you hear believers even talking to one another, and they say, oh, I think he's being judged because he's in sin. That, that can't happen to an, a believer. You can't be judged. God's not going to judge you twice. If he already judged Jesus, and you put your faith and your trust in Christ, he paid for your sins, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. God has forgotten them. He's not going to judge you for them. Will he discipline you? Yes, as a loving father. So sometimes we get mixed up with discipline and and judgment, right? God is disciplining us, and we think he's judging us. No, it's just, you know, I always tell people, look, it's just one step back to God. And they always say, well, you don't know how long I've been walking away from God. It doesn't matter. All it takes you is to turn to him and say, you know what? I'm wrong. You're right. I know you love me. You paid for my sins. Help me to get back on the right track, Lord. And when you come back to God with that kind of a humility and that kind of a broken heart, the Lord says, definitely, you're my child. What sin are you talking about? Because <laughs> I buried it in the depth of the sea. I, I, I removed it as far as the east is from the west. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
Now, our practice doesn't always live up to that. I understand that. And that's what they were struggling with. They were saying, wow, Paul told us this was all going to be this glorious reunion. And now we're, some of them were being martyred for their faith in this church probably or close to it. And, and, and they're thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't ring true. And so their experience was overwhelming them. But here, Paul in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians wants them to understand that the rapture is the basis why he's telling them this. This is the whole basis for his exhortation. He's basically showing them that this reinforces what he showed them all the way from from chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, that we're not going to be going through the tribulation as believers. We will not go through the tribulation. Amen? Amen? Amen. Hopefully you believe that. It'd be a little encouraging there. We won't be going through the tribulation. Why? Because the whole context here is he's making his remarks on the fact of the rapture. He's trying to explain to them that, look, the whole reason that you're not going to go through this is, is this, this, this rapture is going to happen. The whole context here. Now, the second thing here, he says, not only is the rapture the basis for his word of exhortation, but he also says the immediate reason for the reaction of these believers to reports that the day of the Lord was already here. This was... This was why he had to do this, because they were responding to something that happened. And where, where these reports came to Paul, we don't know. It doesn't really tell us how he found out about this. But look at verse 2. It says, not, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, and then either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect, here's what the problem was, that the day of the Lord has already come. So these young believers who were under persecution were afraid that the day of the Lord had already come anyway, and then somebody comes along and they hand them a letter saying, oh, this is what Apostle Paul says now. He changed his view. And actually, you are in the day of the Lord. He, it's, it's the spirit of the Antichrist that we talked about before. And whenever you encounter the spirit of the Antichrist, it's never truth that you're encountering. It's always error. It's always error. It may be disguised as the truth, but that's why it's so important to study your Bibles and to know what is the truth. And so he says here, not to be quickly shaken or alarmed. I'm thinking of, of Jesus' words in Matthew 24 when he described this, this day of tribulation, this time of tribulation, the beginning of sorrows, he calls it. And then he says what? He says, see that you not be what? Troubled. He's talking to his followers. Don't be troubled. Why? No matter how scary things get here on the earth, no matter how awful, no matter how, what kind of cataclysmic or catastrophic events happen, it doesn't matter. The role of the believer is never to panic. Jesus instructs us not to be troubled. Don't be troubled. To understand that God is in charge. And guess what? He will take care of us as his children. We're not to be troubled. And guess what? We're all going to die on time. We're all going to die on time. I was talking to somebody the other day. I said, yeah, we were talking about motorcycles. And Oh, would you get a motorcycle? Yeah, I'd probably get a motorcycle if I you know, wanted to or whatever. And, oh, I don't know. They're kind of dangerous. What I think we're all going to die on time. You know, I'd die driving a motorcycle. I'd die driving a motorcycle. You know, and now you don't go out there and be careless. But you know what? God's got that all worked out anyway. See, the, the, the misnomer, the, the, the mistruth that we have in our heads is somehow we're going to change this time. We're going to change how we die or when we die. Or God says it's appointed on demand once to die and then the judgment. Okay, this is, this is very, very clear in Scripture. Now, the Bible indicates that we're to relax. We're to enjoy the comfort that God provides for us, knowing that, you know what, if times do get worse and I end up being persecuted or even killed for my faith, guess what, I'm going to be in eternity like that. I mean, I may, may have a little pain, but it says don't be troubled. Don't be shaken up about this. And there are three ways 
this can happen here. He says, first of all, by spirit. And we've talked about this before. First John 4 says we have to test everything to see whether it's from God or whether it's from the enemy. And unfortunately, the church has done a very poor job of teaching their people to have any kind of discernment at all. And there's this reaction to discernment, almost like it's, it's um, well, you're just being too harsh, you're, you're being judgmental. Or, no. There's truth and there's non-truth. Okay? And you have to be sure that the things you're reading, the things you're listening, the people you're listening to are not of this antichrist spirit that is teaching you truth. Even though it sounds wonderful. And they look so pleasant. And they look like they just have a, a just amazing ministry. Be careful. Be careful. And Paul, James, Jude, John, all warn us about these spirits. And we have to be careful about that. But then he also basically tells us that, you know what, it's, it's not just through the spirit. It can happen by word. And then also this letter that was floating around, someone um, put Paul's name on it that he never wrote. And uh, we call that pseudographic literature. And we have samples of that even today. Uh, these are letters that were being written that somehow someone said, oh, the Apostle Paul wrote it, but he didn't. All right? And so he's telling us, don't be troubled, no matter what. Well, look at troubled about what? Look at verse 2. This is what he does not want them to be troubled about. He says, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by spirit or spoken word or by a letter seeming to be from us, Here's what he doesn't want him to be troubled about. To the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. He doesn't want them to be deceived thinking the day of the Lord have already come. Now, some translations say the day of Christ. I don't know what you have in yours. I have the day of the Lord. But some translations do have the day of Christ. But even in that situation, because some Bible teachers try to make this about the rapture, and it doesn't make any sense if you, if you say this is the rapture. It's the day of the Lord. It's the coming tribulation time. Um, if he says the day of Christ is referring to the rapture, if it's not the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, um, it's kind of confusing. It, it, it mixes up the waters just really muddy. The other thing that really makes it pretty clear that it's the day of the Lord, even in the Greek manuscripts that have Christ, Christos there, they put a definite article in front of it, the Christ. All right? And if you're Jewish, the Christ is the Messiah, the day of the Lord. It's the Lord. That's what he's talking about. And so you have the rapture there in verse 1, but he's telling them not to be troubled like the day of the Lord has already come because he's saying it hasn't come. It can't come yet. And he's telling them the basis of this rapture, which hasn't happened yet. And, and that's the whole, whole reason here. The day of the Lord is the time of his revelation. This is when we will find out who this Antichrist is. We'll look at the second point. The departure of the church age believers will come first. The departure is the rapture. Look at what he says in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come, that day what? The day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion, the ESV says, comes first. Some translations say the apostasy. Some translations say the falling away. Now, immediately when you read that text as a believer, what do you think about? You think about a religious apostasy, do you not? That's what most people think that refers to. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, the falling away, the apostasy. He must be talking about a spiritual apostasy. And that has to happen first. Well, this is kind of interesting. It's a very interesting text. And we're going to spend a little time here this morning because I think it's very important. There's an emphasis here that's kind of interesting. Unless the apostasy or the rebellion comes first. It's kind of like he's saying this is a big event and then this happens. The big event happens first. And then the man of sin 
is revealed the son of destruction. But you have to have this apostasy, this rebellion that comes first. This word in the original language, apostasia, apostasia, is is used two times in its noun form, only two times. Here and in Acts 21, 21, when they're talking about they forsook Moses, they fell away from Moses, basically. It's used 15 times in its verb form, episteme. And it's, it's used 15 times. And out of those, listen, out of those 15 times in its verb form, it's translated, in our English Bibles, it's translated depart, departure, in 11 places of the 15. So you have this, this word, this rebellion, this falling away, this apostia. It's two times in the noun form, 15 times in the verb form. And out of those 15 times, it's translated depart 11 places. Places like when it says the angels came and then they departed. They ministered here and then the angels departed. It's the same word. Well, it can't mean apostasy like a religious falling away because, you know, they're angels, right? That's already done. That apostasy already happened. A good angel can't turn bad anymore, basically. They can't apostatize. They're servants of the Most High God. And so it basically means the word depart. Now, in Luke, one time in, in chapter 8, verse 13, it's translated fall away. It's found in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, where it's translated, they drew away. In Acts 5.38, it's uh, translated as keep away from these men. In other words, let them alone. Move your, remove yourself from them. The other place that is translated, and I want you to turn over there because I want you to see this, is 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, who wrote 1 Timothy? Who wrote 2 Thessalonians? Paul. So we have something to compare with, right? So in 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 1. Now this is another prophetic prediction. And it says here, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will, what's it say? Depart. Same word. Some will depart. But look at what it says. From what? From the faith. They just didn't leave. No, there's a qualifier in there. They departed from the faith. Paul clarifies it as a religious apostasy, a religious rebellion here in this text in 1 Timothy 4.1. The verse goes on, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. So here it is used as a religious apostasy. It is used as a departure from the faith, a rebellion. Because we have those words, those qualifying words from the faith. It's not just saying they departed, but they departed what? From the faith. It tells us what kind of departure it was. But guess what? Go back to 2 Thessalonians. I think if Paul wanted to establish that this was a spiritual departure that he was talking about, a rebellion spiritually in our text... I think he would have said, for that day will not come unless the, the rebellion of the faith, rebellion from the faith, the falling away from the faith comes first. He doesn't say that. He just says the apostasy comes first, the rebellion comes first. He does not qualify it. That's why I don't believe in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, When he says, unless the rebellion comes first, I don't think he's talking about a spiritual rebellion. It's the same word that you translate as depart or departure. And it says the departure. So if you were to translate this literally, you could say it this way. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the departure comes first. What departure, Paul? What departure do you think he might be talking about, beloved? The one he just got done talking about. The rapture. 
The day of the Lord will not come unless the rapture happens first. It signifies a specific departure that was just mentioned in chapter 2, verse 1, and also in 1 Thessalonians, which was just written months probably previously, in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, Thessalonians, I know this letter's out there. It's not from me, and you should know better because you know what? The day of the Lord is not going to come. It's impossible for you to be in the day of the Lord because you're still on earth. You haven't departed. The Lord has not come back and taken you and gathered you to himself, as he says there in verse 1, are being gathered together to him. Very important point. And it makes sense in the flow, I believe, of the text. The Antichrist, what Paul is saying is, You know what? The Antichrist will not be known. He won't be revealed. We cannot know who he is until after the departure, until after the rapture of the church. No one will know. See, if it's... This is the intention of of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2... I mean, it, it just makes sense that, you know, Paul wrote 1 Timothy. He also wrote 2, Tim, or 2 Thessalonians. And I'm sure if he meant a religious apostasy, he would have said a rebellion from the faith. He didn't do that. Okay. So literally, this is a departure, which I believe it refers to the rapture, a very specific departure. The point is, it's not a religious apostasy. And it, it, you know, I mean, do you believe things are worse today than they were a year ago? Do you think they were, they're worse today in a religious sense than they were 20 years ago? How about 40 years ago? How about 200 years ago? Yes. Right? I mean, there's always religious apostasy going on. Ad nauseum. It doesn't stop. So how would you even know if Paul was saying, oh, the apostasy? Well, how would you know it's the right apostasy? You know what I mean? At what point would you understand, oh, yeah, this is the one? That's why I think it's talking about the, the rapture of the church. If you translate it literally, I think that's what it's saying. That day won't come. The day of the Lord will not come until the departure, the rapture comes first. And then the man of sin, this Antichrist, then you will actually be able to put a name to this individual. Basically, the Antichrist will not be known until after the departure or the rapture of the church. And it's very important we understand this because we see, in fact, that all these Christians around us today, I mean, people are writing books and websites, and all, you know, who's the Antichrist? Who's, oh, it's this person, you know, count up the letters of their name. I mean, there's Christians that are just obsessed with this. Guess what? God hasn't revealed him. I don't care how much homework, you're not going to trump God. Oh, God, I figured it out. No, just give it up. I don't think we should be focused on those things. I mean, if you want to play that game, you can play it all day long. But I think it's the wrong thing for believers to do. I think we ought to keep our eyes on the fact that at any moment, the Lord may return. I think that's where our hearts and our minds should be. And guess what? When he does, as believers, we're out of here. Keep our eyes on the Lord. Like the old song sings, the chorus we sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? Look full into his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. See, the point Paul is making here is the day of the Lord couldn't have come, Thessalonians. It couldn't have come because you haven't been raptured yet. And that's what I wrote in my first epistle. Did you forget? Now remember, I mean, we can't fault these folks too much. They're new believers. Um, This is a 
Nobody had heard about this rapture before Paul mentioned it in, in the previous letter. Nobody, because it's new revelation. So nobody heard about all the believers being raptured out of the world in first, until he said it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so he, he wants us to understand that. Um, but when you stop and think about the, the people there, you know, they didn't have the completed text like we do. You know, it was probably 40, 50 years before they even got the book of Revelation. And in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, one of the first books written. So they didn't have a, a lot of stuff to relate this to. I mean, he's got to go all the way back to Daniel to explain what he's talking about, right? I mean, that's where his teachings apparently came from. And so he wants them to know that, you know what, keep your eyes focused on the Lord, folks. I get it, you're hearing all this noise out here but focus on the lord and that's why as a church we're called to fellowship together that's why we're called to be together so we can build each other up in our faith and that we can exhort and and edify one another so that we can grow stronger in our relationship with each other and with christ because there's a, a day coming when you know what he will return and we need to be ready for that day so we said the day of the Lord is the time of this Antichrist revelation. Secondly, the departure of the church, age believers, will come first. And then look at verses 3 and 4, because this gives us a little description of this man of sin. And it, it, it talks about his real identity. This is like when the masquerade falls off, okay? The mask falls off, and we begin to understand, oh, who this interesting character is. Look at what he says in verses uh, 3 and 4. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion or the rapture comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, or the man of sin is a better translation, really, is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself this is what he's really like, against every so-called God or object of worth, worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself, what? To be God. This is who this really is. And everybody's been duped up to this point. They think, oh, this guy's the, the best thing since buttered bread. You know, he's just coming along, he's making peace, he's doing all this stuff, and that's great for three and a half years until he goes into the temple and and declares himself to be God, and, and if you don't worship him, you're going to die. Uh, that's, his, that's his intent. And so we see here the description of the Antichrist that reveals his real identity. The man of sin is revealed. Um, some, the ESV has lawlessness. I, I think later on in the text it's translated as lawlessness, but here I think a better translation is the man of sin, because it really talks about what makes up this individual. Um, notice in this, these three, verses three and four, anywhere here in the text, really, he doesn't use the word antichrist, <laughs> does he? You don't see the word here. John uses it, but Paul doesn't. And this is, this is tough because, you know, they didn't, like I said, they didn't have all their, their Bibles put together yet. They didn't have the book of Revelation and he says, first of all, the only way I can describe this guy is he's a man of sin. And the reason he says that is four things. First of all, his depravity will go unchecked. Notice it calls him a man of sin. Turn back to Daniel once again, all the way in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 11. And this gives us a little indication of what this man is going to be like, this antichrist about his depravity will go unchecked. Um, Daniel chapter 11, look at verse 37. Daniel 11, verse 37. And this is whom he's speaking of. He's, he's speaking of this Antichrist. He says, he shall pay no attention to the God, gods of his fathers or to the, uh, to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God 
of fortresses instead of these. In other words, he's, all he's interested in is power and might. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. This, this man of sin is the epitome of all the evilness that's existed in all the world up to this point. He, he basically just brings it all within himself. This is truly someone who is, you could say, Satan incarnate, I guess. I mean, we think of all the, the horrible people throughout history, Hitler and Saddam Hussein, you name all these people. He's the combination of all these. This is the worst individual who's ever been on the face of the earth. And his depravity is extreme. It will go unchecked. In other words, he doesn't pay attention to anything. He doesn't care what you believe. He doesn't care what God believes. He knows what he wants and he takes it. And it doesn't matter who he hurts or anything like that. Just very, very depraved individual. Well, the second point here we see is that it talks to him as being not just a man of sin, but a son of perdition. Um, it's, the point here is his destiny is already settled. <laughs> this is kind of good news for us. Um, like I said before, he does not win in the end. God has already taken into account everything that he's got in his little bag of tricks, and he's already defeated his foe. Uh, this is an individual who is destined for judgment, for wrath, for hell. The son of perdition, that may sound familiar to you. Who else was named that? Judas, right? And we see that in John seventeen twelve. It says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me, Jesus says, talking of the disciples. He says, I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction. And why was he lost? That the scripture might be fulfilled. Wow. This is an amazing, amazing verse because it really messes your theology up. <laughs> you know, I mean, as Reformed folks, we believe God's sovereign over all these things. And yet, at the same time, you see the Lord Jesus Christ spending time with Judas, right, before the cross, spending some very intimate times with Judas, really, appealing to his heart, extending the hand, you might say. Uh, not slapping him across the face, but saying, hey, Judas, you know, you, kind of, you don't have to do this. You know, you, you, you can repent any time. And he extends the sup to him at the thing. The whole, the whole picture is Christ reaching out. He doesn't want this destiny to be fulfilled. And see, that, that, that messes with our theology because you, know, you can end up very fatalistic very quickly depending on what you believe as far as election goes. You can end up in a camp that says, well, why even witness to anybody? Because God's got it all figured out. I mean, those who are going to hell are going to hell. Those who are going to heaven are going to heaven. And, you know, I'm not going to change anything. And you think of Jesus when he was here on earth and when he extended his hand, his invitation to salvation. I mean, he extended it to all kinds of people, not just people who are elect. <laughs> and you have to ask yourself, was that a genuine offer of salvation? Was it genuine of Jesus to extend his hand to Judas? Could Judas have repented and come to Christ? I believe, theologically, the answer is yes, he could have. Did he? No. Why, why is Judas, answer the question this way, why is Judas in hell today? Is he there because, well, God made him go there? No. See, that's fatalism. He's there because he willfully chose to do what he did. Even though God <laughs> settled this, and that's why I'm saying there's a tension there. I get it. His destiny is already settled as the son of perdition, but he's also held account for his decision. And see, same thing with the Antichrist. His destiny is settled. He will lose this battle one day. Well, thirdly, quickly here, his determination to be honored above everyone and everything. 
Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, who opposes and exalts him. Back to 2 Thessalonians 2, sorry, 2.4. He says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. This is an individual who says, no, I, I am, you know, uh, you're going to worship me. The audience of one that you're going to have is going to be me. It's not going to be your God. Uh, you know, he's not politically correct in the sense that everybody's okay. You know, hey, just worship whatever you want. No, he, he gets to the point where he says, no, you will worship me or I will kill you. This is what it comes down to. And if you doubt, turn back to Daniel chapter 7 and look at some verses here out of Daniel 7. He says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, he says, he, he's, called the, the, he's called a little horn, and it's kind of a weird verse, but um, to explain it simply, he's giving an illustration, he's giving a vision of what this is going to be like. He says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn. So he had these you could say world leaders, and there's another horn, that, another leader that rises up among them, and it says he's a little horn. So he comes out of nowhere. That's why I'm saying this is not a natural choice. It's not like you look at the leaders today and go, oh, that guy, that guy must be the Antichrist. No, we don't know who the Antichrist is because it hasn't been revealed yet. I don't think it's going to be who we expect it to be. But he says there's this little horn that raises up before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. So basically, he takes over. And behold, listen, in, his, uh, in, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So this is not somebody who's just stupid and, no, they're just on this stupid idea. They think they're the No, this is the real deal. He has an intellect far above any, any intellect. And he's able to sway people with his tongue. And he speaks great things. And then look down at verse 11. It gives us a little more description of this individual. He says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn, this Antichrist, was speaking. And I looked, and the beast was killed, and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And so here it's, it's telling us these, these great words are speaking. But in the end, it's not going to end well. And then look at verse 20. And about the ten horns, this is where we get the idea of this, you could say European Union, whatever it might be, these ten leaders. Ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn that came up and before, which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. So he rises above all world leaders. Verse 25, and he shall speak words against the Most High. And he shall, this is what we referred to earlier, he will wear out the saints of the Most High with his persecution. And shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Basically three and a half years. Now you think about that. And you think about where the world is today with egos and with self-esteem. and with all, I mean, you know, if someone came on the, the marketplace today with the ability to just really sway people, whatever, I think people would just fall like dominoes behind this person. They would just embrace this individual. And his determination is that everyone embrace him, everyone honor him above every god or object of worship. This is this Antichrist that will be coming. Well, fourthly, he tells us here in verse 4 that he has a decision he makes, and his decision is basically he will take his seat in the temple of God and he will proclaim himself to be God. That will be a unfortunate decision for him because <laughs> it will be one of the last decisions he makes. But it's interesting that he is so blinded by his greed and his pride and he doesn't see failure as an option. And sometimes as believers and non-believers, but as believers even, 
there are times in our lives where our vision gets so clouded from the truth or so clouded with error that we forget that, you know what, in the end, we're on the winning team, beloved. Satan will be defeated. We don't have to fret. We don't have to worry about all these things. And this will take time place, all these events that we're talking about here this morning, they will all take place, guess what? After we are gone as a church, we will not be here. And we're going to be talking about that in the coming weeks because he, he talks about it um, coming up in the text here. But it's important to understand that when this restraint of the church is lifted, think what it's going to be like here on earth. I mean, you talk about hell on earth. We haven't seen anything yet. You take away the salt, you take away the light, you take away the presence of the Spirit of God in the lives of believers. We have to clarify that. Some people think that, oh, during, after the church is gone, there's not going to be a Holy Spirit here. Yes, there will be. There has to be. First of all, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? And secondly, guess there are people are going to be saved during the tribulation. You can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. So when they are saved, then it's important to understand that the this, this Spirit's presence will be here during that time. But the presence within the church, right, we will be gone. Now, I want to close with this reading out of Matthew chapter 24 because it reminds us of this day when we call it the abomination of the desolation, when, when, when this Antichrist sets himself up in the temple of God and he desecrates the temple and he declares himself as God and demands to be worshipped. And Matthew, in his gospel, describes this time for us. Now remember, we're, we're not going to be here. <laughs> but there are people that are going to be here. Uh, that's why we need to be sharing the gospel every day with people who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. Look at what verse 15, Matthew 24, verse 15. We'll just close with this and then have a word of prayer. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, there we are, by the prophet Daniel that we just saw, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Why? Because it's, it's about it's going to get real ugly here on earth at this point in time. Verse 17, let the one who is on the housetop not go to take what is in the house. Don't worry about it. Just get out of here. It's basically what he's saying. Verse 18, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the, the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, well, you know, Pray that your flight might not be in the winter or the Sabbath. It's going to be tough traveling. And then he says in verse 21, for then, after this abomination of desolation, when he sets himself up to be God and to be worshipped, he says, for then there will be the great tribulation, such as not have been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, and never will be. This is going to be the worst of the worst of the worst. Verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. There he is. What's he say? Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, he says, even the elect. It's not possible. You can't lose your salvation if you're elect, if you've been transformed by God's grace, if you've been saved, if you've come to the cross, you put your faith, your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Guess what? That's a permanent transaction. Nothing can overturn that. Verse 25, he says, See, I have told you beforehand so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, this Christ, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And the point is this. When Jesus comes back, trust me, you will know it. You won't have to be guessing about these things 
the Lord will clearly uh, show uh, himself to especially this, this world that will be receiving his judgment. Because remember, we will be where? We will be with him. We will be with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we know, Father, that your word is true. And we know that without a doubt that um, one day you will return. And when you do return, you will first return for your church. The Bible says that you will come back and we will be gathered to the Lord in the clouds. And so, Lord, all this judgment, all this wrath that's going to be unleashed here on earth, if you have put your faith, your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, and he has saved you from your sin, you don't have a thing to worry about when it comes to that because we are no longer under the wrath of God. He has delivered us from that because Christ paid the penalty for our sin on Calvary. However, if you're here this morning and you have yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you are still under the wrath of God. As a matter of fact, based upon the authority of Scripture, I can say if you died right now outside of Christ without trusting Christ for your salvation, you would go to a place of eternal torment. The Bible calls that place hell. And you would be placed under the wrath of God for all eternity. God doesn't want you to go there. We definitely don't want you to go there. And so we appeal to you to cry out to the Lord. To recognize your sinful heart, your sinful life before a holy God. And most of us probably in this room have done that. We've come to Christ. We have recognized our sin before a holy God. And we've confessed that sin. And we trusted in the work of Christ on the cross believing that he came to earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he went to a cross, he paid the price for our sin, he was buried, and on the third day he rose victorious over sin and death. And it's that's the Savior that we put our faith and trust in because he does just what he says. He saves us from our sin. If you have yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, it's just a prayer away. You can, you can cry out to the Lord even now. And I think that it, the Biblical prayer is one of, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I need your mercy. I need your grace. I want to turn from my sin to your son, the Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I want to live my life for you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. When you pray that prayer from a sincere heart, from a heart that's broken over your sin, he will answer your prayer and he will save you. He will transform you. He will make you one of his children. And believers, we just need to be aware of the fact that there's not a lot of time left. We all have unbelievers, friends, family, whatever. And Lord, we need to be about the business of sharing Christ with them, continuing to offer them the gift of salvation, even though they may not want to hear it. We continue to live our lives for Christ. And Father, we trust that you would use us here on this earth as salt and light to affect change for all eternity in the lives of our loved ones all around us. And Lord, we thank you for each one that's here today. Pray that you would bless our time of fellowship across the, the, the way in the fellowship hall afterwards as we have a meal together and everybody's welcome to come and enjoy the food. And Lord, we just pray that you would just uh, allow that fellowship time to be sweet as well. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll close with one last song.